This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 81st episode of the program. Today is February 10th, and I'm hoping this is a great episode because I've had so much going on. It's been a pretty bad week for me just you know, personally, uh, but we are going to hammer through because the show must go on, and this is therapy for, for me, so I have to do it. So anyways, before we get started, I want to thank these individuals for joining the Independent Progressive Media Revolution. Today we have Tiffany Namwong, Leon Chow, Roel Verbund, Samuel Goonstead, and Millie Myers. So all of these people decided to join the Independent Progressive Media Revolution and support the show either by becoming Patreon patrons or signing up to be a member on humanistreport.com or by simply submitting a donation to us via PayPal. So if you would also like to support the Humanist Report, you could visit the links down below. But I mean, you could still support the show by liking our videos and sharing our videos and even disabling ad block on the channel if you can put up with YouTube's annoying ads. So on today's episode, I'll discuss Bernie Sanders' debate against Ted Cruz, Donald Trump's third week in office, and how Bernie Sanders is making Trump's life a living hell. I'll also talk about how Donald Trump is lying right to our faces when it comes to the Dakota Access Pipeline. I'll also talk about Tom Perez and how he might have actually blown his chance to become the next DNC chair. Additionally, DNC insiders have some choice words for Bernie Sanders. I'll tell you what they're saying about Bernie and how Democrats desperately want Bernie Sanders to give up his email list. We'll also discuss the effect public pressure is having on Republicans and the FCC. And finally, I will speak with DNC chair candidate Sam Ronan, and he will talk about why he should be the next DNC chair. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. This might be a shorter show than usual, although with the interview, it's going to be relatively long. So look, let's go ahead and just get into it because there are stories that I I really want to talk about. So enjoy the show. Even though I've been consistent in stating how disappointed I am in all of the DNC chair candidates, now with the exception of Sam Ronan, well, I think that there's no question to progressives uh, that Tom Perez is definitely the worst by far. Now, this is because he refuses to state whether or not he would ban lobbyist contributions to the DNC. He supported the TPP and he's been pro-Hillary through and through. He is the establishment's favorite candidate. And for that reason alone, I don't think that we need to go with another failed establishment candidate. The establishment lost in 2016 and they are going to continue to lose if we don't shake it up and get someone who's who's a true progressive. Now, the thing about... Tom Perez that frustrates me is that he wants to focus more on attacking Trump rather than actually being introspective and looking within the Democratic Party and trying to fix the problems that the party has. So he won't acknowledge, or he up until this point, he wouldn't acknowledge that the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders. Now, to my surprise, he had a change of heart. So Tom Perez literally admitted that the primary was in fact rigged against Bernie. And yes, he said rigged. We heard loudly and clearly yesterday from Bernie supporters that the process was rigged 
And it was. And you've got to be honest about it. That's why we need a chair who is transparent, Perez said. Now, before anyone gets too excited about Tom Perez, uh, I'll have you know that he withdrew that statement almost immediately. Later Wednesday, Perez clarified on Twitter that he misspoke about the primary process being rigged. He later took to Twitter to say, I've been asked by friends about a quote, and I want to be clear about what I said and that I misspoke. And he states, Hillary became our nominee fair and square, and she won more votes in the primary and general than her opponents. Now, by misspoke, he means that he said exactly what he wanted to say and what was the truth, but unfortunately, the establishment probably gave him a call immediately and said, what the hell are you doing? You can't say this uh, if you do want to be the DNC chair. So the reason why he recanted this statement uh, within hours is because he actually got a lot of backlash from Hillary Clinton supporters and establishment figures. So, for example, he was bombarded with tweets from Hillary supporters. Just to give you some examples here, one person said, please fight for telling the truth to progressives rather than spread conspiracy theories pushed by Bernie's bullies. Hashtag she won. This is disappointing. You pandered to the lying Bernie or bus crowd who only want to destroy the Democratic Party. Exactly. Dumb move by Perez because we had his back. We are loyal to HRC. Bernie wants to destroy the Democratic Party. Yep, this. We will have this statement thrown in our faces forever. Thanks, Tom. Oh, you bet your ass you will. Too late, sir. You lost my support. Bernie's name is not a good one for the Democratic Party, and the primary was not rigged. And there's a lot more where that came from. Now, I'm not just reading you these tweets so I can provide you with a great example of cognitive dissonance and delusion, uh, but I'm reading you these tweets because I think that it really says a lot about Tom Perez. And I also want to read uh, one of the tweets that Joanne Reed, who is a media figure, said. She said, if Tom Perez believes this and isn't just pandering to Sanders supporters, he should explain specifically how the primaries were, quote, rigged. Well, uh, why don't you ask your friend Debbie Wasserman Schultz why she resigned? Did she just resign uh, for no reason on her own accord? No, she was pushed out because it was revealed that she undermined Bernie Sanders and tried to sabotage his campaign. That's called fraud. She violated the DNC's own charter. Look it up. Uh, the DNC chair is supposed to remain neutral, and she tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton. So the fact that you're not educated about what the DNC did to disenfranchise progressives doesn't change the fact that progressives were mistreated during the 2016 election. It was rigged. Uh, so that's really frustrating to me. But getting to my bigger point about why these tweets are important. So it shows who Tom Perez is really representing. So I mean, for months, progressives have been calling on him to say that he's going to ban lobbyist contributions to the DNC and admit that the primary was rigged. And the minute that he does one of those things, he receives some backlash from hillbillies and caves immediately. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that Tom Perez is not interested in representing progressives. He represents the people that are fine with corporatist Democrats that represent donors over voters. It's why he doesn't listen to Bernie Sanders supporters. It's why he walks away from interviews with progressives. It's why he refuses to give Nomiki Konst of TYT an interview. This is the guy that's supposed to unify the party. He is catering to the needs of people that hate Bernie Sanders. They literally hold contempt for Bernie Sanders. They say he's going to destroy the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders is the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, even though he may not identify as a Democrat. Well, his ideals 
by and large, uh, are in line with Democratic Party voters. He's pushing for health care. He's pushing for education. He's trying to move the party left after they've been moving more and more right for the last several decades. What an asshole. What an asshole for actually trying to get the party to focus more on voters as opposed to donors. What a terrible person he is. That's who Tom Perez wants to cater to. People with that point of view. Now, if you didn't think all of this was bad enough, well... The Associated Press is doing what they did during the primaries. They're trying to demoralize progressives by already calling the election. They're telling you to pack it up and go home because apparently Democratic strategists with knowledge of the chairman selection process say Perez has as much as a 66-member lead among the 447 members of the party who will vote on the next chairman at the party convention in late February. In total, 304 members have indicated who they're backing. The strategist spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the vote counting. Yes, because people who make these really big claims, for some reason they always want to speak on the condition of anonymity because they're too afraid to reveal their identity. Maybe because uh, it's bullshit. This election is not over. And... I'll be damned if we're going to just roll over and die yet, no matter who you think is going to win. Now, let me just say this. Uh, I'm glad that Tom Perez decided to misspeak because Tom Perez may have blown his chance to be the DNC chair because, look, he's been the establishment favorite. He's been basically the favorite to win since he entered the race because the establishment and President Obama basically pushed him into this race. So I'm glad that he blew it. Because now that he's losing support among even Hillary Clinton supporters, that makes it more likely that someone like Keith Ellison or Sam Ronan will win. So, thank you, Tom Perez. Throughout the course of the DNC chair race, I went from enthusiastically supporting Keith Ellison to feeling more ambivalent towards him. And this is because I feel like he's wavering on some of his core issues, and he's not really willing to admit the fact that the DNC did in fact disenfranchise progressives in 2016. Now, the reason why... I want the DNC to admit that they did rig the primary against Bernie and disenfranchise progressives is because if they continue to pretend that it didn't happen, if there's no accountability, then that's not going to help me trust the DNC. That's not going to assure me that they're not going to do this again in 2018 and 2020. So at this point, or up until this point, there hasn't been a single DNC chair candidate that's been willing to actually speak out about this. There is, however, a DNC chair candidate that's been in the race for quite some time that none of us really knew about until recently. So his name is Sam Ronan, and Sam Ronan didn't choose to stick his head in the sand and run away from the DNC's previous fraudulent actions against their own voters. He actually chose to confront it head on. Well, I gotta say, Keith Ellison makes a very strong argument, and for the right reasons. We do need to reach out together. We do need to build those bridges, because they were burned, and they were burned deliberately. Because so many of those people that are disenfranchised thought the primaries were rigged against them and their candidates. And the fact of the matter is, it's true. The Democratic Party has not been open to outsiders and new members in our entire history. And if we want to bring those people back, we need to prove to them that we're willing to open the doors. Secondly, and most importantly, we have to have accountability. If we're going to be Democrats, if we're going to be congressional leaders, if we're going to be secretaries of labor, and if we're going to be mayors, and we're going to call ourselves Democrats, we damn well better own up to that. Because right now, we have senators, we got congressmen who called themselves Democrats who are rubber stamping Trump cabinet appointees. And that is unacceptable. Now, I might not have enough cloud or all these different, you know, all these different uh, people supporting me, but 
What I do have... Thank you, Keith. Team Keith. Team Ronan. What I do have is conviction. I was in the military, too. I know what a good leader looks like, and I know that it's easy to say that we will fight against the opposition. Everybody in this room is and has been doing that. That goes without saying. But the hard part, the truth, the reality, is that we messed up as a party. We need to own that, and we need to hold our fellow Democrats responsible. As your DNC chairman, that's exactly what I would do. I would offer those, those olive branches. I would build those bridges. I would give millennials, progressives, and Berniecrats the opportunities, the resources, and the tools to succeed, but I would also hold our members accountable because if we don't, we lose what little credibility we have left, and that is the fight we must win. So that two-minute clip there immediately sold me, just hands down. I mean, that was... That was phenomenal. I want to read you the quote that he said there that I think was just great. He said, we messed up as a party and we need to own that and we need to hold our fellow Democrats responsible. And this is exactly right. If there's no accountability, then the future DNC chair is going to do exactly what Debbie and Donna did in 2016. And we can't have that. And this is precisely why I've been so vocal about wanting the DNC chair candidates to speak out against the way that Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazil undermined the campaign of Bernie Sanders and violated their own charter. So he said precisely what I've been wanting a DNC chair candidate to say. Now the question is, who the hell is Sam Ronan? Because up until this week, I haven't heard a single thing about him. So Sam Ronan is an immigrant originally born in Germany that moved to Lancaster, Ohio, uh, when he was six. Now, he's a veteran that currently serves in the United States Air Force Reserves, and he's just 27 years old. And this is a promise that I really like. He says, Sam will fight for you because people first and politics second. That is the bottom line. Now, let's be honest here. Time is running out. I like Sam Ronan, and I want him to be the DNC chair. I think he's a superior candidate in comparison with Keith Ellison. But, you know, we only have a couple of weeks left. Uh, the election takes place between uh, February 23rd and 26th. So if we actually want Sam Ronan to be the chair, we've got to act quickly. So there's a couple of things that you can do. So first of all, you can actually call the DNC. That's the first thing you need to do uh, at 202-863-8000. And what you can do is visit the link in the description box which is a list that shows you who your DNC state representative is. So I want you to make two calls, one to the national DNC headquarters, because if we overwhelm them with calls and just politely let them know that we left the party and we're only willing to come back if Sam Ronan is the DNC chair, I think that if they get an abundance of calls all at once, well, that will send a huge message to, to them. And also, if you call the DNC representative that is supposed to represent you, then that can also have a huge uh, impact. Grassroots activism works. So, look, make the call if you want Sam Ronan to be the DNC chair. I'm going to go ahead and call the national DNC. Um, it is late, so I'm going to have to leave a message to both because I usually film pretty late. Uh, but, you know, you can say what I'm saying or you can say something different. Um, really, it's up to you. But, I mean, I would just communicate to them what you really feel. You want Sam Ronan to be the DNC chair. So this is the national DNC. Thank you for contacting the Democratic National Committee. Send us an email at info at democrats.org or visit our website at democrats.org. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, 
Simply hang up or press pound for further options. Hi, my name is Mike Figueredo. I'm a lifelong Democrat, and I wanted to call to encourage anyone and everyone at the DNC to vote for Sam Ronan to be the next DNC chair. That's Sam Ronan. He's a progressive, and, you know, after the 2016 primary and how Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazil disenfranchised progressives, I actually left the party. I registered as an independent, and I'm not willing to come back to the party unless there's someone like Sam Ronan as the DNC chair. So if you want to bring back progressives and independence, uh, I'd really want to strongly encourage you to support the uh, chairmanship of Sam Ronan. Thank you. Now I'm also going to call uh, my representative in Oregon, in Portland. Uh, I'm probably going to have to leave him a message because, again, this is uh, almost 9 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And yes, it is legal for me to record phone calls in Oregon. <laughs> At the tone, please record your message. When you are finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi, Mr. Dixon. My name is Mike Figueredo. I'm a progressive, and I wanted to encourage you to vote for Sam Ronan to be the DNC chair uh, at the upcoming DNC chair election, because I actually left the party after being a lifelong Democrat when I saw how Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazil disenfranchised progressives in 2016. So really, the only way that I'm willing to come back to the party and re-register as a Democrat, potentially, is if the DNC elects Sam Ronan as the next DNC chair. So please, I would really encourage you to uh, represent me as your constituents, uh, as your constituent, and everyone else from Portland who supports Bernie enthusiastically, uh, to support someone who is a true progressive, and that is Sam Ronan. So please, vote for Sam Ronan. Thank you. So, I mean, look, you don't have to say everything that I'm saying. You can use that as a template if you want, but I don't want you to be nervous. You, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, just basically communicate to them how you feel that you want Sam Ronan to be the DNC chair if you really do believe that uh, you think he should be the chair. So, uh, you know, let's do it. I, I'm enthusiastic about Sam Ronan, and I think that he's showing that he has what it takes to actually rebuild the trust that the DNC lost. So last week I told you guys about how Bernie Sanders called out Joe Biden after he decided to endorse Tom Perez to be the next DNC chair. Now Bernie Sanders correctly pointed out that this is not a very good strategy to go with the failed status quo approach again after the status quo, which is the Democratic Party establishment, was obliterated in 2016. It, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, Democrats lost the White House. They lost Congress. They lost the Supreme Court. They lost the majority of state legislators. Uh, they lost a majority of governors. You lost. The status quo lost. The Democratic Party establishment lost. So now it's time to go with someone who's more progressive, namely Sam Ronan or at a very minimum, Keith Ellison. But Joe Biden decided to uh, to just uh, go with the same failed status quo approach. So when Bernie Sanders says that Joe Biden is going with the same status quo approach, he's correct. That's a fact. They failed in 2016. They were wiped out. But nonetheless, people within the DNC, certain DNC insiders, and even some DNC chair candidates 
got triggered by what Bernie Sanders said, and they had some pretty uh, had some pretty harsh words for Bernie. So someone named Gilberto Hinojosa, a Texas Democratic chairman who will vote for Perez, states, it is very concerning that Bernie Sanders is so intent on taking over a party that he's not even a member of, and that he'd insult the beloved vice president, and really the president, about a failed status quo approach. This is coming from a man who is not even a member of our party, he continued. We lost an election, and all of a sudden, we're all a part of a failed status quo? When he puts Joe Biden and Tom Perez in this category and paints with a broad brush, he insults all of us. This is an election between loyal, qualified Democrats who love our party and the country. There's no need for him to lower himself to that level. Okay, so when you want Bernie Sanders to increase the party's popularity and uh, campaign for you, well, then he's a Democrat. But when he says something that you disagree with, all of a sudden, you know, he's not a Democrat. He has no right to speak about our party. If you don't love our party, then get out. That's a really great strategy. Great way to bring people into the party uh, when you guys are losing. Uh, and again, you guys, you're not in control of anything. So you have no right to talk now. Now, uh, DNC chair candidate Jamie Harris had this to say. I'm disappointed in that, referring to what Bernie said. This is my message to everybody. The 2016 primary is done. Over. Senator Sanders, Secretary Clinton, both were not victorious in 2016. We need to focus on how we become victorious in 2018. How we become victorious in 2020. We have to stop the infighting because somebody may win the battle, but ultimately we'll lose the war. Uh, no, you don't just get to say, well, it's over, you know, let's not talk about it, let's move on. Uh, the fact of the matter is that you guys fucked up. If it wasn't for the DNC rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders, there's a chance that he could have won. And if Bernie Sanders was the Democratic Party nominee, guess who would be president right now? Not Donald Trump. It would be Bernie Sanders. So I'm sorry, I'm not willing to just forgive and forget that easily. And furthermore, we have to talk about this. We have to look within and see where the party is failing, because if we don't, actually rebuild the trust that you guys lost in 2016 by screwing over progressives, you're never going to get those voters back that you screwed over. So I'm sorry, I'm not willing to forgive and forget, and no, we're not unified, we're not going to put this behind us. We're going to call you out until you acknowledge it and apologize for it. Now, a Clinton ally said this, the DNC forums and these campaigns for chair have all been about unity, 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 and Bernie put out a different message, said one Clinton ally. He's opening these old wounds, and it looks to me also like his ego is at play. Perez and Ellison are cut from the same progressive cloth. Either one would be a strong leader. That's not true at all. Perez supported the TPP. Ellison did not. Perez refuses to state whether or not he would ban lobbyist contributions to the DNC, uh, and he's not raising as much grassroots contributions as Keith Ellison, and Keith Ellison said that he would, or indicated at least that he would ban lobbyist contributions to the DNC. They're not cut from the same cloth. If you can't accept the fact that progressives don't want corporate money in the Democratic Party, then there's never going to be unity. We can never negotiate or compromise on that fact. If you think that the party should continue to take money from large cor corporations and billionaires, we'll never have unity. Now, a Democratic strategist had this to say. He doesn't get to set the standard for a party he's not a member of. Simmons said it's up to those 447 longtime members of the party. Uh, if he'd like to have a vote, he should join the Democratic Party. We'd love to have him. The truth is, we can't win without the Bernie wing, but we also can't have someone who is just a voice for Bernie Sanders. The lines are not that clear. There is overlap. Again, we have the same premise here. You're not a Democrat, so you don't get to talk about Democratic Party issues. Well, do you want to bring more people into the party or not? By saying, well, you're an independent, I don't want anything to do with you, you are shutting out voters and 
you are slitting your own throats for the election. You don't do shit like that. If you want to win an election, you can be successful in said election if you bring more people in, not exclude people and say, well, you know, you're not a registered Democrat. So, I mean, this is all super frustrating to me. The Democratic Party will never learn, which is why we have the Justice Democrats. Since you guys won't learn and won't listen to us, we're taking over the party and your asses are going to be kicked out. Uh, so, you know, we tried to work with you. We really did. But you've shown that you not only not want anything to do with us, but you actually have contempt for people uh, like Bernie Sanders when he dares to speak the truth. Wake up. So most people within the Democratic Party establishment have shown nothing but contempt for Bernie Sanders. And DNC insiders and even a DNC chair candidate spoke out against Bernie Sanders recently. So they don't like Bernie Sanders, but they try to exploit Bernie Sanders in a multitude of ways. They try to exploit him for his popularity and they'll kind of trot him out to be the poster boy for Democrats, but they're not really willing to listen to what he has to say or embrace any of the reforms that he wants. Uh, and there's a new way that they're trying to exploit Bernie Sanders. They want him to give up his email list that has millions of people that donated to him. Now, the question is, why would they want this list? Well, the answer is pretty simple. They want to solicit people on this list for donations. They think his uh, supporters, the progressives that they defrauded and disenfranchised in 2016, are going to be a cash cow for them. That's really cute, but it's not going to happen. So according to Mother Jones, as the Democratic Party struggles to regain its footing following its disastrous November election, one vestige of the 2016 campaign has taken on much importance. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' email list. Sanders, who raised $218 million online from a record 2.8 million donors, rewrote the rules of email fundraising during his campaign by relentlessly courting small-dollar contributors. In an interview with the Huffington Post in December, Former Labor Secretary Tom Perez, a frontrunner in the election for Democratic National Committee chair, said he wants to learn from Senator Sanders about how he did it. Democrats have made no secret they covet Sanders' list, which Sanders controls through his Senate campaign and the political nonprofit he founded, Our Revolution. The decision on what to do with it rests with Sanders. Our Revolution won't be giving over the list, says the group's president, Jeff Weaver, who is Sanders' presidential campaign manager. Sanders, for his part, has most mostly stayed quiet about the future of the list, which one Democratic consultant referred to as his precious. He told the Washington Post in January that he would cross that bridge when he comes to it. But former Sanders staffers and consultants scoff at the demand for the list. The way they see it, clamoring for access misses the point. The list wasn't the campaign's secret weapon. Sanders was. They keep thinking it's the list, says Becky Bond, who, as a senior advisor to Sanders, helped build the candidate's national organizing operation. It's so crazy. It's like someone who buys a $12,000 bicycle and thinks they can win the Tour de France. So, you know, if Bernie Sanders speaks out and tries to reform the party, then Bernie Sanders isn't a real Democrat. But, you know, if Bernie Sanders has this list that could potentially be a cash cow for the Democratic Party, well, all of a sudden he's a Democrat and we'd love to have you hand over the list, Bernie. Could you hand over the list, Bernie, please? We need some money. This is ridiculous. And Bernie Sanders, he said that, you know, he would cross the bridge when he comes to it. Bernie, don't you dare give them our information because that would be, that would be very very frustrating. I think it would be a betrayal to your voters, and I don't think Bernie Sanders would do that. Uh, but, I mean, people 
are making fun of Bernie. They're calling it as precious. The reason why Bernie Sanders was successful was not because of this email list. Bernie Sanders was successful because we wanted to give him our money, because we wanted to support Bernie Sanders, because we believed in Bernie Sanders. And the Democrats just time and again, they continue to show how clueless they are. I mean, take it from Tom Perez. He says that he wants to learn from Bernie Sanders about how he did it, how he got, uh, you know, this big, large list of people that were willing to send him money whenever he asked for it. Well, I'll tell you, Tom, we believed in Bernie Sanders. He actually was someone who proved to us that he represented voters and not donors. You haven't done that. That's why we don't want to support you and we don't want to give you money. That's why Keith Ellison has raised more grassroots contributions than you. So we don't believe you. And it's really simple. You know, there's no secret weapon. Bernie Sanders was successful because people believed in him. He was a genuine politician. He was organic. He said what was on his mind. And he wasn't trying to screw us over. He wasn't trying to deceive us. He said what he felt. That's why people liked him. And what he said, more importantly, was substantive. Democrats, you know, they're really conflicted right now. They hate Bernie Sanders. They hate progressives because, you know, we're kind of a, a thorn in their side right now because they would love to continue to be sellouts to large corporations that contribute to their campaign and we don't like that we don't want them to do that and we're calling them out we have justice democrats now we will be taking over the party so they hate us but yet you know they want to try to exploit us and exploit bernie sanders by trying to use that list to raise money well it doesn't matter if bernie sanders gives you the list and i don't think that he will but if he does if you think you're going to raise money off of us and exploit us after basically giving us the middle finger and fucking us over at every turn you've got another thing coming you're delusional democrats never gonna get it 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 so Donald Trump has now been president for 3 weeks and at this point I think that there are few people who aren't willing to admit that the president is, in fact, a complete moron. And, you know, when it comes to what he's been doing, I'd say that his third week is probably on par with his first and second weeks. You know, uh, I don't think it got worse, but it certainly didn't get better. Uh, and this week, we learned that the president is either dumb, delusional, or the more likely option, uh, a little bit of both. Uh, and to illustrate why this is the case, we we found out some really embarrassing facts about the president. So Donald Trump's team is reportedly conducting meetings in the dark because they aren't able to locate the correct light switches in the White House. Now, he also reportedly called Mike Flynn at 3 a.m. because he wanted to clarify whether or not a strong or weak U.S. dollar would be better for the economy. We also know that his staff gets him to agree to things by saying that Obama wouldn't have done it. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, he's literally fabricating absurd conspiracy theories and believes that the uh, media is not reporting and is trying to hide the truth about terrorist attacks that are occurring. Now, he's also hung up the phone on the Australian Prime Minister, and Australia is a strong ally of the United States. You don't do that. That's not how you conduct diplomacy, especially with allies. And he's also being advised by Scott Walker on how to destroy unions. Great. Now, when it comes to the issue of corruption, well, new documents reveal that Trump is still benefiting from his businesses. So to clarify here, President Trump is refusing to place his businesses in a blind trust. He basically delegated uh, his businesses to his two sons, and this doesn't go far enough. But what we found out is that he apparently has the authority to, quote, revoke uh, the trust from his two sons, meaning that he's still in control. 
this is a bombshell. Like, we need to understand this is huge. This is an impeachable offense. This is a direct and brazen violation of the emoluments clause. This is not acceptable. So after finding this out, I think Democrats should immediately be moving to impeach him. And given that he's vocally against the decision of private companies to pull support from his daughter's brand, well, I mean, we can all surmise that he's pretty damn concerned about his own business interests. Now, when it comes to policy, I want to give you guys the rundown as to what types of policies he's been implementing. Now, when it comes to his Muslim ban, uh, 150 former federal prosecutors have spoken out and denounced his Muslim ban. Now, also, Trump is lashing out at federal judges that have been striking down his brazenly unconstitutional ban. And really, I mean, his administration is attacking everyone that speaks out against Trump and calls it fake news because they believe it's, quote, wrong to attack the president. I don't think they realize what the media is supposed to do. The media rarely does their job and holds politicians accountable. But the whole point of having a media is to be a check on government power. They're supposed to keep the people informed about what you're doing. So to say that it's wrong to criticize the president and attack the president, clueless, you're delusional. Now, he's also allowing private equity firms to screw over your retirement plans, and he wants to give them a pretty big payday. Now, The Intercept explains Donald Trump's February 3rd executive order enabling financial advisors to continue ripping off their clients could prove a lifeline for a surprising beneficiary the private equity industry. The Department of Labor's fiduciary rule would have forced investment advisors and workplace retirement plans like 401ks to operate in their clients' best interests rather than recommending high-cost, high-risk products that offer the advisors kickbacks and perks. So he's showing here that he's not on your side. He's literally allowing private equity firms to scam you and rip you off so they can make more money off of you. And this means that uh, your retirement will be screwed over. That's unbelievable. Donald Trump does not represent you. So if you voted for Donald Trump, I really hope you realize that you uh, decided to screw yourself over. Now, additionally, he's allowing companies to embolden uh, Central African warlords. The Intercept states the leaked draft of a presidential memorandum Donald Trump is expected to sign within days suspends a 2010 rule that discouraged American companies from funding conflict and human rights abuses in the Democratic Republic of Congo through their purchase of conflict minerals. The memo, distributed inside the administration on Friday afternoon and obtained by The Intercept, directs the Securities and Exchange Commission to temporarily waive the requirements of the Conflict Mineral Rule, a provision of the Dodd-Frank Act, for two years, which the rule explicitly allows the president to do for national security purposes. Now, throughout the campaign, he rightfully criticized politicians, namely Hillary Clinton, who had a relationship with Wall Street that was just too cozy. However... What Donald Trump did this week uh, is a direct contradiction to his campaign rhetoric. He signed an executive order that would move to roll back what little regulations we have on Wall Street. So he's trying to now dismantle Dodd-Frank. And that's not even the most absurd part of the story. The reason why he's trying to dismantle Dodd-Frank is really the craziest part. So he states, there's nobody better to tell me about Dodd-Frank than J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. So he has to tell me about it. But we expect to be cutting a lot from Dodd-Frank because frankly, I have so many people, friends of mine, that have nice businesses. They can't borrow money, Trump said Friday morning, shortly before signing the executive orders. They just can't get any money because the banks just won't let them borrow because of the rules and regulations in Dodd-Frank. So he's rolling back regulations on Wall Street because his friends, quote-unquote friends, that's his words, not mine, they want him to do that. Now, 
Dodd-Frank doesn't go far enough. There's no question about that. And President Obama signed Dodd-Frank into law in 2010 because this was a small thing that we could do to prevent another crash like the one that occurred in 2008. So if a crash occurs, if the economy crashes, you know who to thank now. Now, I don't even think that's the worst thing that he did in his third week as president. So he had a phone call with Vladimir Putin uh, and... There was something that was just downright disturbing that went on. Huffington Post explains in his first call as president with Russian leader Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump denounced a treaty that caps U.S. and Russian deployment of nuclear warheads as a bad deal for the United States, according to two U.S. officials and one former U.S. official with knowledge of the call. During a debate in the 2016 presidential election, Trump said Russia had outsmarted the United States with the treaty, which he called startup. So we need to understand very clearly what he's saying here. On his call with Vladimir Putin, he said that he's against this treaty that Putin and Obama signed that reduces the nuclear stockpile of the United States and Russia. And let me remind you, Vladimir Putin is even in favor of this because even though Vladimir Putin uh, is an authoritarian strongman, he knows, yeah, we we don't need to be adding more nuclear weapons to our uh, stockpile because, you know, I would like to uh, exist. And if we kill each other with nuclear weapons, then obviously that's bad for everyone. Donald Trump is saying we should have more nuclear weapons, and what this will do is catalyze, potentially, a new nuclear arms race. So what Donald Trump is doing is potentially starting a new Cold War with this. It's insane. And this is why progressives consistently spoke out against the Democrats who saber-rattled against Russia, and they literally called on Russia uh, to be, uh, or they literally called on uh, Donald Trump, excuse me, to be strong on Vladimir Putin and prove that he's not a puppet of Putin by basically being tough on Vladimir Putin. I mean, the bottom line is that I don't want someone as dim-witted as Donald Trump to be tough on Vladimir Putin. So, uh, I want there to be peace. But, I mean, this is scary. This is really scary. Now, the good news is that Rex Tillerson, uh, who might save the day, surprisingly, says that he's actually in favor of this treaty. Now, as Secretary of State, I hope that he actually influences Donald Trump to keep this treaty in place because we don't need to be building more nuclear weapons. Uh, we need to reduce our stockpile, if anything, and we don't need to start a new uh, nuclear arms race with Russia. I mean, Jesus Christ, how crazy do you have to be to want that? Donald Trump is just a buffoon. Now, the reason why Donald Trump does things like this is because uh, he's unhinged, and he's also not surrounding himself around smart people. Uh, people like Steve Bannon literally believe that the apocalypse is imminent and that war with countries such as China is inevitable. Again, this is his chief strategist, someone who thinks the apocalypse is inevitable and thinks war with China is inevitable. So if you're wondering why Donald Trump keeps making these completely irresponsible and irrational decisions, it's because he's crazy and everyone around him is crazy. The monkeys have taken over the zoo and it's a really scary thing. So we are going to have to be vigilant and Democrats need to work on impeaching this asshole because they have a reason to do it. Impeach him, get him out, before he does something crazy. Ajit Pai is Donald Trump's new FCC chairman, and basically as soon as Donald Trump made him the new chair of the FCC, he wasted zero time in trying to screw over consumers at the behest of internet service providers. Now this guy 
proved to be deplorable because throughout his time on the FCC, he has been one of the most vocal critics of net neutrality. He said that he wanted to take a weed whacker to the rules that mandate net neutrality. And recently, what he did was he made it more difficult for low-income people to afford internet. So this guy is just an asshole. And once he became the chair, he received a ton of backlash because everyone knows his true intentions. He wants to screw everything up, and he's doing that pretty quickly. So he decided to speak out because he thinks that people are being unfair because he apparently thought that he could screw over the American people and we would take it lying down. But apparently, he doesn't remember how when the last FCC chair tried to kill the internet and screw, and screw over the American people, he faced extreme grassroots resistance. Apparently, he forgot. Well, uh, let me remind you you, Ajit Pai. Screw us over and there will be hell to pay. We will protest you every single day and call the FCC every single day. So let's talk about the story here. So Vice News explains, thanks to a series of moves set to weaken net neutrality, reduce regulation of phone carriers, and alter a program meant to subsidize internet and phone access for low-income consumers, Pai, a former lawyer for Verizon, is well on his way toward implementing the GOP's agenda. On Friday, the FCC said it would reverse an order put forth during the Obama administration to to allow nine ISPs to participate in the Lifeline program. Only one of the companies, however, has already rolled out of the program. Established in 1985, Lifeline is a $2 billion subsidy that allows low-income families to shave $925 off their phone bill and broadband internet bills every month. Last year, the FCC expanded the program's terms to include ISPs that provide only broadband internet, in addition to ISPs that also provide phone or bundled phone internet plans. After a weekend of flurry headlines and criticism from activists, groups alleging that he's advancing the corporate interests at the expense of consumers, Pi punched back on Monday in a strongly worded blog post. Uh, I'm sorry, Pi, but naturally, if you try to gut net neutrality and make it more difficult for poor people to afford the internet, uh, you're going to piss some people off. So he decided to push back against the sensationalism that's apparently being really mean to him. He states, Unfortunately, many of the media headlines have sensationalized this story and given some entirely misleading impression of what is going on. Indeed, based on the sum of coverage, one would think that we had ended lifeline broadband subsidies altogether. Now, he goes on to talk about how, you know, by making it a little bit more difficult for certain poor people to afford the internet, that's really not that big of a deal. I mean, the extent to which this affects people, the number of people that will be affected, you know, it's pretty small. Uh, we don't care and nobody believes you. Uh, it's still a shitty thing that you did. You made it more difficult for people to afford the internet. I mean, we get screwed over. We pay f more for the internet than other countries like Europe, for example. Uh, and that 925 is make or break for a family that is living paycheck to paycheck. So what you did was really shitty. I don't care if you, it affected 10 people. You did something really shitty and we're watching you. We know that you want to uh, destroy net neutrality because you've stayed that you want to destroy net neutrality. And look, if you go to the Humanist Report website, there's a bunch of resources for you to speak out against Pi's corruption. And you can actually submit a complaint to the FCC demanding that he reinstate the lifeline subsidy, that he protects the internet and keeps the internet free and open for everyone and not just something that the corporations can take over. And look, even the former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler stated that Pi's new plans to modernize the FCC, meaning to basically just strip it of its regulatory powers so that way the ISP can do what they want. 
It's a fraud. It's a fraudulent scam. This is what the Republicans always do. They say, well, you know, we need to modernize this agency, uh, meaning we just need to make it toothless and not able to do anything uh, and rein in these in, uh, these ISPs that rip off consumers. Unacceptable. We're watching everything that you do, Ajit. We're watching every little thing that you do. And if you think that what you've experienced in terms of public backlash now has been pretty tough for you, we'll just wait until you announce your plans to actually take a weed whacker to net neutrality. You will face severe public backlash. We will protest you every single day. We did it to Tom Wheeler, and we made him an ally after he came from the telecommunications industry. He was a lobbyist for Comcast, and we made him an ally of net neutrality, and we will do that to you. And if you're not willing to be an ally, then you will resign. The public, at the end of the day, will win. You will lose on this. So if you're a progressive in the United States right now, it's really difficult to be optimistic because we have a rogue party in control of all branches of government and they're doing everything they can to not just ruin the country, but they want to destroy the environment. They want to abolish the EPA. They want to gut net neutrality rules. So, I mean, it's really difficult to not feel hopeless in a time like this, but I want to share a story with you guys that demonstrates that the situation is not hopeless and you do have quite a bit of power. We all have power collectively. Now, we know that we have power because one of the first moves of Republicans was to try to gut an ethics watchdog. Uh, and after receiving thousands of phone calls uh, and emails, they were forced to back down. So that kind of showed us right then and there that they're forced to listen to us. Now, MSNBC released a story that showed that progressive activism is actually really starting to get to congressional Republicans. So they state, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady, for example, scheduled an event in his district two weeks ago to discuss the Affordable Care Act, and he seemed eager to limit the audience to his allies. The gathering was held at a local Chamber of Commerce headquarters. It wasn't announced to the public, and the congressman's office said the point of the event was to hear from constituents facing rising costs and loss of coverage uh, and choice because of Obamacare. As the Houston Chronicle reported, dozens of skeptical and at times testy locals showed up to express their vocal support for the health care reform law. There's a lot of this going around. Representative Mike Kaufman recently snuck out of the back of a library in order to steer clear of constituents who wanted to tell him not to take away their insurance. Representative Justin Amash faced a similar reaction during a town hall event in Grand Rapids. Representative Barbara Comstock stood up to constituents over the weekend who attended two town halls with questions about an Obamacare repeal and the Trump administration's travel ban. And speaking of Virginia Republicans, the Huffington Post reported this week that Representative David Bratt is feeling pressure from women in his district over Republican efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He states, since Obamacare and these issues have come up, the women are in my grill no matter where I go, Bratt said to laughter at a private event on Saturday, according to a video posted to Facebook. They come up and they say, when's your next town hall? And believe me, it's not going to be positive input. He asked the audience to mobilize because we're getting hammered. Now, there was another House Republican that two weeks ago said his constituents are, quote, freaking out 
uh, because they're afraid Congress is poised to take away their health benefits. So, I mean, this is happening everywhere across the country. People are getting involved and they're putting pressure on these Republican thugs who want to screw you over. Now, another example, Representative Jason Chaffetz, he introduced a bill to privatize 3.3 million acres of public lands and this is what happened. So, Think Progress explains more than 1,000 sportsmen, outdoor business owners, and public land supporters joined Governor Steve Bullock in Helena, Montana. Wednesday afternoon, a rally in New Mexico drew hundreds more people, all protesting congressional attempts to sell off or privatize public lands. And guess what happened? This bill was then yanked after the public put pressure on Republicans. Now, another example here is Tom Cotton. He got a lot of backlash after stating that he supports the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And this coward literally hid in his office from constituents, uh, and he refused to come out. He claimed that, you know, the office was threatened uh, because <laughs> people are putting pressure on him, and he's not threatened. There's no evidence for that. People are putting pressure on him to not screw them over and take away their health insurance. Here's a video of that. Okay, from, uh, it is from our DC staff. We are unable to have anyone in the office because of recent threats that we have had. Um, I'll be happy to pass anything over to the senator if you'd like to tell me. So we can't we can't meet with anybody from the senator's office or the senator staff or the, no. As of right now, we've been told by some three that we can't. We have to staff. Okay, I'm no threat to the senator or his staff. I understand, ma'am. Pass on what I've been told. And no meetings because of threats to your staff. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So, I mean, the takeaway is that they're afraid of us. Republicans don't just get to screw us over and then get away with it. There will be public pressure if you do things that harm the environment, that take insurance away from people. You can't do that. You can't do that and not expect us to rise up and protest you. And look, we live in a democratic republic. We elect people that will represent our interests. And if you're not representing our interests, we are going to vocalize the fact that we are disappointed in what you're doing or outraged in what you're doing. So the takeaway is that, look, you're not going to screw us over and get away with it. And we will protest you. So look, I want you guys to know that you're not, you're not hopeless. You have power. You have a tremendous amount of power. Don't ever underestimate the impact that a phone call will have or what holding a sign in front of a congressman's office or just going to his office or, or her office in Congress and sitting there and demanding that they uh, don't screw you over. We have power. We can fight. And yes, we can stop them. And you can get involved. You can get involved. So look, these Republican scumbags are finding out really quickly what happens when you mess with progressives. So I don't think you could point to a more vocal critic of President Trump than Bernie Sanders because any and everything that Donald Trump does, if Bernie Sanders doesn't like it, Bernie Sanders calls out Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders is relentless. And I think it's making President Trump's life a living hell because people like Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders has the weight of millions of progressives behind him. So... Bernie Sanders, I want to demonstrate to you exactly what Bernie Sanders is doing and how he's responding to President Trump and how that's actually impacting President Trump. So, for example, he recently talked about how Donald Trump is moving to repeal uh, Dodd-Frank. You know, it is hard not to laugh uh, to see President Trump alongside these Wall Street guys. To say this, Jake, and I, I, you know, I don't mean to be disrespectful. This guy is a fraud. 
This guy ran for president of the United States saying, I, Donald Trump, I'm going to take on Wall Street. These guys are getting away with murder. Then suddenly he appoints all of these billionaires. His major financial advisor comes from Goldman Sachs. And now he's going to dismantle legislation that protects consumers. This is a guy who ran for president saying, I am going, I'm the only Republican. I'm not going to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And then he appoints all of these guys who are precisely going to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So I hope that all of those folks who voted for Mr. Trump because he thought that he would stand up for working people, man, uh, this guy is, you know, he is a good showman. I will give you that. He's a good TV guy. But I think he's going to sell out the middle class and the working class of this country and that business on Wall Street. He told us, in fact, it's in the Republican platform. He is going to bring back Glass-Steagall. We're going to be dividing up commercial banks from investor banks from insurance companies. Then he has all of the big Wall Street guys on his side, and now he's working for Wall Street. You heard that right. A sitting senator called the president a fraud. And you know what? He's right. Now, another example. Uh, so Donald Trump recently attended the National Prayer Breakfast and Bernie Sanders decided to troll him. So Trump implied that he's now all of a sudden holier than thou and he vowed to totally destroy the Johnson Amendment. But he did all of this while also mocking Arnold Schwarzenegger, saying that we should pray for his bad ratings. So Donald Trump found Jesus. But what's, you know, hypocritical about this is that the thrice married pussy grabber in chief will be reportedly signing an executive order that denounced his premarital sex and same-sex marriages. But all of a sudden, now that he needs to pander to the evangelical right, well, you know, he's found Jesus. And Bernie Sanders was quick to congratulate him on his so-called spiritual awakening. And Bernie Sanders is a savage. Now, Bernie also penned an article in the Washington Post where he used Trump's own words against him and asked whether or not Trump has the guts to stand up to Big Pharma. Now, before Bernie Sanders printed out one of Trump's tweets and brought it to the Senate floor. So, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that whenever Trump says something, Bernie Sanders is on his ass. If Trump said something previously and he looks as though he's going to contradict himself and go back on his promise to the American people, Bernie Sanders will use his own words against Donald Trump and call him out. Now, what's funny about this is that when I look through President Trump's Twitter feed, I don't see him responding to any of Bernie Sanders' attacks. And, you know, this is really weird because we all know that the president is a thin-skinned imbecile who has to respond to everything everyone says about him. So the question is, why is it that the most popular senator in the country continues to rip Donald Trump and call him out, and he's just ruthless and <laughs> relentless, uh, and President Trump doesn't say anything back to Bernie Sanders. He's not picking these Twitter wars with Bernie. Well, it's pretty simple. Donald Trump is afraid of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders intimidates Donald Trump for whatever reason, and this is demonstrated by uh, the times that they've went toe-to-toe -to -toe in the past. I mean, Bernie Sanders challenged Donald Trump to a debate Donald Trump then agreed to the debate, and then he backed out. So <laughs> that shows that he's a big chicken shit. Additionally, uh, when it comes to uh, raising the minimum wage at a debate, Donald Trump literally had the audacity to claim that wages in the United States are too high. This is what he said specifically. Taxes too high, wages too high. Wages too high. It's the world. I hate to say it, but we have to leave it the way it is. People have to go out, they have to work really hard, and they have to get into that upper stratum. But we cannot do this if we are going to compete with the rest of the world. We just can't do it.
So do not raise the minimum wage. I would not raise the minimum. Now, after Trump said this, Bernie Sanders ripped him for it. And this is what he said. Bernie stated, Donald Trump is a guy who does not want to raise the minimum wage. In fact, he has said that he thinks wages in America are too high, but he does want to give hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks to the top three-tenths of 1%. Now, the result of this was not just Bernie Sanders, you know, ripping Donald Trump and Donald Trump responding. Bernie Sanders literally got Donald Trump to reverse his position. So not only did Donald Trump walk back his statements, but he got Donald Trump to do a complete 180 and actually tweet that wages aren't too high. So with Donald Trump being an egomaniac and knowing that if he responds to Bernie Sanders, he's going to get owned, well... I think it's very clear that President Trump is terrified of Bernie Sanders. I think that's incredibly apparent. It's evident to anyone who's paying attention. Donald Trump doesn't want to go toe-to-toe with Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders has the weight of millions of people on his side. And Bernie Sanders will crush President Trump if President Trump does try to respond to any of Bernie Sanders' attacks. So the reason why I say that Donald Trump's life is now being made a living hell because of Bernie Sanders is because... Bernie Sanders continues to call out Donald Trump on his bullshit and hold him accountable, yet Donald Trump, he doesn't want to pick a fight with Bernie Sanders because he will lose. So I think it's great. Bernie Sanders is effectively making Trump's life a living hell. Good, because we need someone who actually intimidates Donald Trump because the things that he's doing in just the three weeks that he's been president are incredibly harmful. So Bernie Sanders will continue to call out Donald Trump's more harmful policies and Donald Trump is going to be forced to zip his big lips because he knows Bernie Sanders is going to own him. Uh, So if you're frustrated with everything that Donald Trump is doing, just take satisfaction knowing that Bernie Sanders is really making Trump miserable right now. So I know I'm a little bit late to the party on this, but I wanted to talk about the debate that CNN hosted between Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz about healthcare. Now, I thought that the debate uh, was entertaining, and I predicted that it would, in fact, be entertaining. Uh, And overall, I came into this debate expecting Bernie Sanders to just completely clean Ted Cruz's clock. And even though I think that Bernie Sanders overall was more persuasive, and I think that he probably was more effective at persuading the average viewer who didn't really know much about healthcare... I don't think Ted Cruz bombed, and I kind of expected him to bomb. Now, there's a few reasons why I think this is the case. So, first of all, he's debating from an indefensible position. He does not believe that healthcare is a right. He thinks that health insurance companies should be able to control our healthcare and rip us off. Now, the American people, they have experience with health insurance companies. They hate them. They know that they're getting ripped off. So, if you argue that healthcare is not a right that the government should guarantee to every single citizen, and if you argue that we should be ripped off by these health insurance companies, inadvertently so, but nonetheless, that's the case he's making. He wants the health insurance industry to continue to thrive in the U.S. Uh, I think that that's an indefensible position, and more and more, Americans are waking up to the fact that we're getting ripped off. All these other citizens in modern industrialized countries, like the United Kingdom, Canada, They have free universal health care. Well, it's not free. I mean, it's single payer. You pay into it, but you don't get ripped off by private insurance companies. So I think that Ted Cruz was disadvantaged because, just generally speaking, he was arguing from a position that's less popular based on public opinion polls. Now, second of all, Ted Cruz is incredibly disingenuous. He's very smarmy. We all know this. And he's literally a shill for the health industry. So, for example, he accepted $3.4 million from the health industry over the course of his career. So with that being said, I thought that Ted Cruz was entering the debate at a disadvantage, uh, but 
I will say that, unfortunately, I do believe that Ted Cruz was probably pretty effective at deceiving a substantial portion of the viewers who weren't educated about the American healthcare system uh, because he uses words well. And Bernie Sanders even pointed this out. I mean, Ted Cruz, he's a great lawyer. Ted, you're what? a good lawyer and you use words well. <laughs> Thank you. But I mean, I don't want to over-congratulate Ted Cruz because I do think that Bernie Sanders still defeated him pretty handily so. But I think that Ted Cruz did hold his own given that he had just completely bullshit and uh, disingenuous political positions when it comes to the American healthcare system. Uh, now, with that being said, Ted Cruz still embarrassed himself several times. So <laughs> I expected this, but I mean, he literally congratulated a woman for having MS. Congratulations on, on dealing with MS. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible disease and, and congratulations on, on your struggles dealing with it. Oh. <laughs> Now, to no one's surprise, this probably isn't the most embarrassing thing that Ted Cruz has ever done in a debate. Besides being just generally creepy, he came off as an overly smarmy, uh, rehearsed, focus group-driven politician. Uh, and he, he really demonstrated how fake he was uh, with his interaction with some of the people who were asking questions. So, for example, he tried to pretend like he gave a shit about some of the people by trying to build rapport with them and asking, you know, what's your kid's name and whatnot. And it came off as so cringeworthy and just fake. Congratulations on, on your new baby. Is, is it a boy or girl? It's a surprise. Oh, well, wonderful. <laughs> and, and, and you said you have an older child. What's your older child? We have a two-year-old son. What's his name? Samson. Oh, well, well, maybe you'll have Delilah and that'll be... Uh, <laughs> uh, so that was one of the many contrived exchanges that Ted Cruz had with multiple audience members and Bernie Sanders. Now, just generally speaking, even though he articulates himself relatively well, he still said things. When you really focus on the substance, he said things that almost made my head explode, and I think it almost made Bernie Sanders' head explode as well. Now, with that being said, I do want to address particular moments from the debate that I found interesting. So, the reason why I think Bernie Sanders came out on top and was probably more persuasive overall is because Ted Cruz basically made Bernie Sanders' point for him a couple of times. You're paying more for it, and your deductibles are higher, and you mm -hmm. know who's making out like gangbusters? The insurance companies and those in government whose solution is let's have even more government control. Senator, this thing isn't working. You know, here I find myself in agreement with Ted. He's right. The function of insurance companies is not to provide quality health care to all people, to make as much money as they possibly can. Ted, let's work together on a Medicare for all single payer program. <laughs> So we're finally going to get insurance companies, private insurance companies, out of our lives. So I'm really glad that he alluded to the fact that private health insurance companies are ripping us off. But he still holds contradictory views because on one hand, he acknowledges that the health insurance company is really ripping off the American people. But on another hand, he wants to cut government-run programs, and he still implies that a government-run program like Medicaid or Medicare that is inferior to the private insurance industry. You know what that solution is? Massive cuts in federal funding for Medicaid. 
So, I mean, it, it was really frustrating. Like, I wanted to bang my head against the wall because Ted Cruz makes the point that these health insurance companies are ripping us off. However, he wants to make sure that there's no public option. And he also wants to cut funding to government-run healthcare programs. And the reason why he wants to do this is so that way he can argue that big government should be kept out of healthcare. So, in other words, he wants to break government-run healthcare programs like Medicaid and defund them so that way they don't work, so that way he can bemoan a government takeover of healthcare. He's doing this because if we do have a Medicare for all system, then the private health insurance companies would be obsolete and Ted Cruz loses millions of dollars in campaign contributions from them. And this is why he desperately tries to convince us that countries with better healthcare services that actually guarantee healthcare like Canada and the United Kingdom, well, they're actually worse off. But I mean, that's demonstrably false. He wants you to think that, you know, countries with single-payer systems and universal healthcare systems of some sort, uh, that they're actually worse off because the waiting times are so bad that citizens die all the time. That's what he's implying here, and he brought up several anecdotes to illustrate why these programs are so bad. A couple of stories from the United Kingdom in Glasgow, Scotland. The Queen Elizabeth University Hospital was so overboard in this past January, it turned away three women who were in labor because they couldn't take care of them. You know, it's cute that he thinks that just bringing up a couple of anecdotes could prove his point, but <laughs> the fact is that their healthcare systems in Canada and the UK are better than ours. And if you really want to bring up anecdotes to prove your point, Ted, I... Look, do we have all day? Because I could talk about a hundred anecdotes that demonstrate why the American healthcare system is horrible, why it's completely inferior, and anyone who is an outsider looking in knows that. And it's funny because right as Ted Cruz was making this point, I had my friend who lives in the UK say, uh, he's totally lying right now. And I saw people on Twitter tweeting out saying, uh, yeah, uh, I'm from Canada and we love our healthcare system, and Ted Cruz is lying. So, in sum, I think it's very clear that Ted Cruz wants you to think that government-run healthcare programs are the boogeyman. But what really is the boogeyman are these private insurance industries that rip us off and that decide whether or not they're going to cover us. And we know that they don't want to cover us, and they try to deny care all the time to us because that's how they make money. They literally make money by denying coverage to us. And Bernie Sanders did a phenomenal job at explaining how they rip us off, rip us off uh, multiple times. Why would an insurance company want to provide care to you when having a baby is a fairly expensive proposition. You don't make money doing that. Ted talks about giving people choice. Here's your choice. You got cancer and you go to the doctor and the insurance company says we're not going to cover it. We can't make money on you because you have cancer. You have a pre-existing condition. And here's another choice you can have if we get rid of Obamacare. If you have diabetes and you're spending a whole lot on health insurance, the insurance companies will say, sorry, we're only going to spend X dollars because we got to make money off you. That's the function of private insurance. Now, I want to get to a really important part of the debate where I thought that Bernie Sanders just nailed Ted Cruz. So we asked Ted Cruz if he thought health care was a right. And this is what happened. Ted, let me ask you a question. Sure. Is every American entitled, and I underlined that word, to health care as a right of being an American? Yes I, or no? You know, I'm glad you asked that. You know, right is a word you use a lot. Let's yep. talk about what rights are. Rights mean you have a right for government not to mess with you, for government not to do things with you. If you look at the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights, free speech means the government can't silence you when you're speaking. So what is a right? 
is access to health care. What is a right is choosing your own doctor. And if you believe health care is a right, why on earth did you help write Obamacare that caused six million people to have their health insurance canceled, that had them uh -huh. lose their doctors, well, and for, have people like LaRonda who can't get health well, insurance, for, can't afford premiums? You're denying her what you say is her right. Well, two things. You didn't answer question, although I interpret your question to be that LaRonda does not have a right. No, that's not what I well, said. Well, what well, I well, said well, is no, I heard the Bill of Rights. I got access the Bill of Rights. Right. She has access. But you and don't have choosing enough money. your doctor Look, is a LaRonda, right. you have access right now. Go out and get a really great health insurance program. Oh, you can't do it because you can't afford it. All right? That's what he's saying. Access to what? You want to buy one of Donald Trump's mansions? You have access to do that as well. Oh, you can't afford $5 million for ours? Sorry. Access doesn't mean a damn thing. So I thought that that was just a really artful dodge, and I had the same reaction that Bernie Sanders had when I heard uh, Ted Cruz make that case. Look, here's the thing. The point of forming a country is that we pay taxes in return for services from the government. The government builds roads for us. The government has a military that's supposed to protect us from uh, external threats. The government is supposed to make sure that we are alive and I think healthcare is a crucial part of that. And Bernie Sanders brought up a phenomenal point. He says, access doesn't mean a damn thing. And I think that right there was the highlight of the debate for me. Access doesn't mean a damn thing. I have access to anything I want, basically. I mean, the possibilities are endless uh, when it comes to what I have access to. But the problem is that if I don't have money to purchase these things that I do have access to, it doesn't mean a single thing. And that's what Ted Cruz doesn't get, or he does get and just doesn't want the American people to uh, catch on to. Healthcare is a right. I think that is a non-negotiable position. And even if you want to make the constitutional case that healthcare is not a right, uh, well, then I think that you should argue that we should amend the constitution to codify healthcare as a right. Because a government that can't even keep its citizens from dying, from getting sick, that is a government that is illegitimate. So, I mean, in the end, I think that the takeaway from the debate uh, that really summarizes my position and Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders' position pretty concisely can be boiled down to this right here. The United States is the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right. I believe we should move in that direction. The ACA has been a step forward. We have got to go further and join every other major country on earth and say that if you are an American, you are guaranteed health care as a right, not a privilege. There you have it. That's the main takeaway. Health care is a right. If you think that Americans should not have access to health care, I think you have a morally indefensible position. I also think that you have a legally and constitutionally indefensible position. Health care is a right. And if you don't think that there's a constitutional or a legal right to healthcare, then you should argue that it should be a right. Because someone who claims to be a Christian like Ted Cruz, uh, you should follow the lead of uh, Jesus. And you should actually advocate for healthcare as a right. And actually try to work with Bernie Sanders to codify a single-payer healthcare system into law. But again, Ted Cruz doesn't want to do this because Ted Cruz gets millions of dollars from the health insurance industry. And, you know... That cash cow goes away if we have a single-payer system because that makes these health insurance providers obsolete. So what Ted Cruz is doing is he's trying to argue uh, from a position that is anti-American, that's pro-death, that's pro-health insurance industry. It's indefensible, and he did a good job coming, uh, you know, coming from a, <laughs> a position that I think is just quite frankly egregious. But in the end, I think Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, he he won. He won because. 
not only does he have the right position, but I think he's more influential uh, in communicating the correct message that healthcare is in fact a right and anyone who disagrees is just a scumbag. So this week, we got some really bad news. So it now seems as though the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline is imminent. And this is because the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has granted the final permit needed to uh, continue and complete construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. CNN explains, with this action, Dakota Access now has received all federal authorizations necessary to proceed. And Vicky Granado, spokeswoman for the Energy Transfer Partners, said that work would start, quote, immediately. Now, this is absolutely terrible news to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Uh, this is bad news for for the 17 to 18 million people whose drinking water will be vulnerable. This is bad news to the planet and bad news for progressives uh, and those that care about uh, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe uh, and clean drinking water rights. But, you know, according to our delusional president, this isn't actually as controversial as progressives are making it out to be. In fact, it's not controversial at all. Well, I approved two pipelines that were stuck in limbo forever. Uh... I don't even think it was controversial. You know, I proved them. I haven't even heard. I haven't had one call from anybody saying, oh, that was a terrible thing you did. I haven't had one call. You know, usually if I do something, it's like bedlam, right? I haven't had one call from anybody. And, you know, uh, we've got a lot of jobs. In the Keystone case, we have potentially 32,000 jobs almost immediately. And then, as you know, I did the Dakota pipeline. And nobody called up to complain because it was unfair. Years of getting approvals. Nobody showed up to fight it. This company spends a tremendous hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and then all of a sudden people show up to fight it. It's not fair to our companies. And I think everyone's going to be happy in the end, okay? I don't even know what to say about that. I want to read you back his quote. I haven't had one call from anybody saying that that was a terrible thing you did. Oh, is that so? Well, I'll tell you why, Donald Trump, you haven't received a single fucking call. It's because when you call up the White House, uh, this is the message that you get. Thank you for calling the White House comments line. Thank you for calling the White House comment line. The comment line is currently closed, but your comment is important to the president, and we urge you to send us a comment online at www.whitehouse.gov forward slash contact or send a message through Facebook Messenger. For government information by topic, visit www.usa.gov or call 1-800-FED-INFO. Thank you for calling. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Goodbye. If you open up the comment line, I can assure you we would be voicing our opinions and let you know uh, that we're not happy with this. Uh, but also, what he did was in his executive order that allowed for the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline to continue, he literally included a part in there uh, that states that it should be continued in an expedited manner because he wants to hurry up and push it through be, uh, before public opposition to it becomes too overwhelming. That is the biggest scumbag move I've ever seen. And by saying that it's not controversial, here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to sweep 
under the rug all of the state-sanctioned violence against the protesters uh, and the water protectors at the Standing Rock Reservation. I'm talking about rubber bullets. I'm talking about concussion grenades, spraying protesters with cold water in freezing cold weather, sicking guard dogs on them by armed mercenaries, being harassed and arbitrarily arrested by militarized police, and having their sovereignty and clean drinking water jeopardized. So if you mean to tell me that this pipeline is not controversial, that by definition is not even an alternative fact. That's just straight up bullshit. And we know why Donald Trump wants this to go through. It's because he has stock in energy transfer partners. Not only are we going to pull our money out of the banks that are supporting the Dakota Access Pipeline, but best believe that the water protectors will return and they will protest the construction of this pipeline relentlessly. So I recently had the chance to speak with DNC chair candidate Sam Ronan, and he explained why he thinks he should be the next DNC chair. Here's our conversation. So Sam, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run to be the next DNC chair, considering this is probably the worst job in the world to have right now? Sure. Um, so, you know, my background is pretty simple. You know, it starts off with me being an immigrant, my mom being from Germany, me being from Germany, and it ends up with me being a veteran, uh, enlisted in the Air Force, seven years, still a reservist. And, you know, if you had asked me five, ten years ago where I would see myself, it definitely wouldn't be here right now running for DNC chair. And, you know, the reason why I'm here is because nobody else has stepped up to the plate. I mean, here you have names like Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, and they just failed to meet the standard. They have failed to rise to the occasion. What we need right now is true leadership, not platitudes and not rhetoric. And, you know, this is going to sound cliche, and I hope it doesn't come off that way, but you know, when I swore that oath to my country, I meant that, you know, I meant that I would protect and defend the Constitution. And when it's being literally just torn to shreds by both political parties and our current administration, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And the fact that so many people don't have a voice and so many people are angry and disenfranchised, it, I had no choice. I mean, I literally had no choice other than to put my foot through the proverbial door. Right, right. And, you know, one thing that I think really struck a lot of people with you is that out of all the DNC chair candidates, like for me anyways, um, I've been extremely frustrated because all of them kind of want to bury their head in the sand and not talk about what happened in 2016. So, I mean, just for the sake of, uh, you know, letting my viewers know where you stand, what -hmm. is your position on the 2016 Democratic primaries? Do you think that the DNC was unfair to Bernie Sanders? And do you agree that they basically rigged it against Bernie Sanders and progressives. And you know what? I'll take it even a step further. They not only rigged it against uh, Bernie Sanders and progressives, I mean, they rigged it against everyone, everyone who was an outsider, myself included. Okay, so, I mean, granted, I couldn't participate in in the democratic process because I was in the military. We're not allowed to. Um, So I've been in politics all of since 2015. And so I'm an outsider. I'm running for the first time. I'm new to this party. I'm new to the city and the state, uh, the county, I mean. <clears throat> and I'm trying to run for Congress. And they already have their person picked out. It's the friend of the county chairwoman. And so I get pushed to the side first. And then second, I'm given the state representative position that was an open ticket. Um, you know, my military training got in the way a little bit. But even so, the fact that I was pushed out from square one was pretty ridiculous. So multiply that by the Bernie Sanders debacle of them just literally not 
listening to the will of the people and, you know, all the collusion that occurred. Absolutely. And I'll, again, a step further, the superdelegates, that is the most ridiculous thing in the world. You take that word just by itself, superdelegates, that already implies that they carry more weight than any other quote unquote delegate. And that's just not right. 11 million votes is the weight they carried out of 500 people. That's ridiculous. That's not democratic. Right. And I like that you're telling us your experience firsthand with what was wrong with the DNC in 2016. So my question then to you is, as someone who's experienced the bias, you know, against progressives and outsiders, basically, what do you say to the Bernie Sanders supporters and progressives who are demoralized right now? How do you get them to come back into the party after they left, after a Dem exit, after Dump Dems mm -hmm. Day? What do you say to bring those people who left back? Because it seems really difficult right now. Oh, it, it is absolutely difficult. And you know what? If I wasn't here doing the, what I'm doing, I, would, I wouldn't listen to me either. But here's, here's the harsh truth that neither side, neither just nobody wants to admit is if the Democratic Party, Party falls right now with the fact that we have a duopoly in our country, if the Democratic Party falls, the GOP stands unopposed. And I think that reality hasn't sunk in. Yes, you need to be angry. I am not telling you not to be angry because you were screwed over and I was screwed. We were all screwed over. I'm the disenfranchised youth just as much as you are. But I understand that there's a bigger picture at stake. There is um, a greater good that needs to be served right now. And if we let the Democratic Party fall as they deserve, because I admit that they deserve to fall for what they've done, we don't have a checks to the balance of the GOP. And right now, the GOP is playing Hitler's playbook. And I'm not saying that as hyperbole, because everybody's compared everybody to Hitler since Hitler's been around, right? But Trump has verbatim followed the Hitler rise to power. We are on step two right now of the administration. This is not a laughing matter. This isn't to be taken lightly. If, if Justice Democrats and the new Congress and the Young Turks and all these other progressive leader groups had the strength to unite all of them into one cohesive unit, I would be backing them or I'd be at home doing whatever I do. But the fact of the matter is they're too young because the reason for their being is too recently. And so that infrastructure isn't there, that clout isn't there, that, that strength that you need to be a party is not there, unfortunately. And I will admit, unfortunately. So we have to take it upon ourselves to do what we need to do. And that means taking over the Democratic Party. And I want to emphasize, take it over. Not fix, not put a band-aid on it. We have to take it over. And that's why from day one in Houston, we have to be held accountable. We, the party needs to regain its trust. And if we don't do that, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter who's running or who's the chair. If we don't regain trust, it's a moot point. So to your question and to be more succinct, me reaching out to Berniecrats and progressives is saying as a Berniecrat, as a progressive, as all these things, we need to come together. But when we do, we need to be the ones in charge saying what needs to happen. That's why all of my emphasis, all of my plans are on giving power back to the people. We need a centralized uh, communication structure so there's bottom-up communication and, and top-down communication. Because right now there is none. Go to Democrats.org and type in anything about DNC members or the state uh, contact information. There's nothing. That's a problem. There's no transparency. For the sheer simple fact of having a directory, that'll oh, I'm sorry. That opens the doors 
to to people to reach out to who these people are. You need to contact your state chair so you know how to write, run for Senate or, or state rep or something. Uh, or you, just who the hell is your county chair? Where is the party located? I'm having a problem at my county level. I need to elevate it. I'm having problems at my state level. I need to elevate it. The second part is we need a presence back in our, our communities. How do I reach Bernie Kratz? Well, I have to talk to them. I have to go on through their doorstep, knock and say, hi, I'm the DNC. We don't have a presence anywhere in rural America, and that's why our trust is shot. That's why they voted for Trump, even though it was against their best interests. And and it's our fault. I mean, our, as in the Democratic Party's fault for doing that. So it, it's extending the olive branch, but it's also a leap of faith that if you join this new Democratic Party under my leadership, we will be building it together. And I think that kind of outreach, which is unique to only my candidacy, would be enough to show that genuine and sincerity to to start anew and do the right thing. Right. And um, you kind of alluded to this as well, but I kind of want to know uh, specifically what you would do differently than Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazil. I mean, some of the biggest complaints, obviously, were um, the lack of debates, the closed primaries. So, I mean, as DNC chair, do you promise at least 25 at a minimum debates? I mean, do you promise to fight? I mean, this would be relatively difficult, but I mean, as chair, obviously, you'd have the clout. Do you, mm-hmm. I mean, will you vow to get these closed primaries, the abolished? I mean, what can you do differently to bring more people back into yeah. the party and rebuild trust? Now, I, I do want to hit on the debates thing. It's not so much that 25 is too many or too little. It's at what point are these candidates not just going to completely be repeating themselves and it doesn't serve a greater purpose? I mean, the, the whole point of a debate is to be able to co- compare and contrast. Whether that's 25, whether that's three or four or five or whatever, that I think we would definitely have to discuss that. And as chair, I'd be open to that conversation. So that's the first thing that sets me apart from uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and um, uh, Donna uh, Brazil. Um, the second thing you said, the, clo- uh, the, op- the closed primary. And absolutely, we need to open that sucker right up because if we're going to call ourselves the party of the people and it's all in behind the scenes, closed doors, what have you, then there's – we can't. And and that's that trust issue. I mean, I think uh, this interview is going to revolve around that word, trust, integrity, and accountability. And yes, that is exactly what I intend to bring to the party. Um, how we would go about the open primaries, I mean, that's also up to debate. Um, me personally, if the whole point is to win the most delegates, right, and then have the most support, and then whoever has the most points wins, why not make each state worth one point, win or take all? I, I think... To simplify the process down to that level would make the most sense. That way, the popular vote among Democrats selects who their winner is. And if it's like a 50-50 split, you know what? Either split the, the vote again or do a recount. Or it's a null thing. I mean, either way, there's there's plenty of discussion to be had. But superdelegates and the algorithm, the who, who knows how to do that calculation anyway, how it was determined who got what half. Because it wasn't simple mathematics, I know that. Um, that, that, that's not conducive to the, uh, the political process, let alone the democratic one. So on those two topics, I mean, we are definitely on board. Um, I would say that I can't pledge to 25 debates because 25 debates may not be enough or it may be too many. I would rather pledge to have as many debates as it takes to get the point across without oversaturating people with information. Well, okay, let me follow up with this. So first of all, I think that when you talk about winner take all, I don't know that I'm on board with that, honestly, because um, 
I mean, this is obviously something that depends on preference, but I do think proportional is fair, is more fair. But I think that you can probably sell that point so long as you maintain just a general consistency when it comes to fairness across the board. Right. So if all candidates are treated fairly, I think you might be able to sell that. But for me, I know I'm not on board. But when it comes to the debate thing, I want to stress what the debates and kind of just um, follow up with this and kind of challenge you on this point. So sure, yeah. when it comes to the debates, I understand that 25 does seem redundant. But the reason why we have so many debates is because some of these candidates, they have a name recognition benefit that really hurts yeah. grassroots candidates. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, for example, going into it, she had a 60-point lead because nobody knew who the hell Bernie Sanders was. <laughs> so right. I think that part of the DNC limiting debates was a way to really hide away Bernie Sanders from the public. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're all really sensitive about debates and why we want to have more debates, not less. And, you know, part right. of it, which is strange, is that there's a difference between the 2008 debate style that we had and the 2016 debate style. So in 2008, the DNC only sanctioned about 10 debates, 12 debates, but we did have around 25 debates. And the DNC in 2012 only sanctioned about six debates to start. Now, the difference was that there was an exclusivity clause. So Debbie Wasserman Schultz literally banned candidates from participating. Uh, from participating in non-DNC debates. So if, for example, CNN wanted to have a debate with Hillary and Bernie, well, then Debbie Wasserman Schultz could step in and say, well, if you guys have this debate, you are now banned because of this exclusivity clause. Um, so that's kind of the thing. Like, it was it was very brazenly arbitrary. So that's why yeah. I'm really, I, I think that uh, we need more debates and not less. And if uh -huh. you end up being redundant, I understand that. But, I mean, getting the word out, I think, is more. And, you know, with Republicans, I really think that they monopolized on uh, political dialogue in the country by having so many debates. And I know that they had more candidates. But, right. you know, I think discussion should be robust. So that's why I just wanted you to. Yeah. I'm hoping that, you know, you can kind of clarify a little bit and hopefully no, lean and, in the direction and, of more and not less. No. And, and see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I have an idea. I have a plan. And I have a reason for it, the logic behind it. Right. And then you come up with a, another suggestion and, and solution. Well, the Debbie Wasserman Schultzes, the, the Donna Brazils, the Keith Ellisons, the Tom Perezes, they're going to just shut you down. It's like, no, we're going to do however many I say we're going to do and exclusivity clause this and that. I'm open to the discussion. Like I said, I think 25 is too many. You say 25 is not enough. That's cool. I'm open to that discussion. Um, my whole thing is I just don't ever want it to be oversaturated. Now, Coming from the guy who nobody knows about, I understand where you're coming from. At least it gives that people that exposure. And to that end, I absolutely agree. Um, so most certainly we need to have more opportunities. Um, but considering presidential candidate or, uh, campaigns start off uh, more like two years in advance, I, I don't see a problem with having uh, one debate a month or uh, two debates a month. I mean, I think that could possibly be reasonable. Uh, and that would also give us that 50 or that 25 mark. Uh, for sure. And and to that point, yeah, I think that would definitely work. Um, I'm just worried that it would be, you know, while everybody's still feeling out their candidacy for the first six months, the first eight months, if we combine them all at the final six months or before the primaries or, you know, six months before the primaries and we're just doing 25 back to back one a week, we might lose people on it. Sure, That's the sure. only part of that debate. And I, so I get that. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we're on the same page now, or at least where, where we're coming from it. And again, that's a healthy discussion. Um, the second thing or the first thing you said, uh, the debates, um, I'm, I'm sorry, what was the first part? The debates with the one thing and then the 
the other part of your question. Um, so let me think back. So with the debates, um, the exclusivity clause was something I brought up. Right. The exclusivity, I mean, that has got to go. I mean, if CNN wants to host a debate, let them. I, hell, I'll, I'll be I'll be right up there with them. I'll, I'll moderate the damn thing. I, I don't care. Um, shucks, I really forget. Oh, no, no, the primary process. Um, yeah, the open primary, the, the winner-take-all thing. The only reason why I say winner-take-all, because if it had been a winner-take-all, it might have made the discussion of did Bernie get completely shut out or did Hillary get enough votes? But then again, I get what you're saying. If there was going to be collusion, that would be the simplest way to do it. If it's a winner-take-all and there is, you know, quote-unquote hanky-panky happening in, in, the, in the tallies, then, of course, that becomes more convoluted. So to your point, I, I agree and I understand that. Um, that's why I said ideally, or, or, or I hope I should have said that. Um, I, that's what I mean. Ideally, it would be a winner-take-all system with integrity and, and accountability all across the board. Um, the whole, the calculation of who gets how many delegates, it just has to be simpler. It either has to be a, a legitimate percentage, like if Hillary got 50% of the vote and Bernie only got 47 or, you know, some amount of math, you know, then, then it should be split by that. And if it's not an even split, like say there's only 10 or only like seven delegates or something like that, that's not going to be a very easy split when we're talking 43% versus 57% or something. So, you know, at some point we're going to have to, you know, really get into the weeds. Maybe just straight do it calculations you get 3.765 points or delegates based on your percentage and i'm okay with that too i think going forward as a chairman with with those specific things that affect so many people it has to be a group decision it can't be up to me it can't be up to just one person it has to be a consensus maybe even voted on i know that makes things more convoluted because more ideas but eventually there's there's usually just a grouping of ideas with slightly different paths and then those five or six different main ideas end up coalescing into one and i'm that is what i want to focus on so for your answer i want to make it a group decision i don't want to make it my decision whether or not i have thoughts on the idea totally and you know what i like is that we're going to have disagreements on certain things you're never mm -hmm. going to agree with someone on 100% of the issues but i think that what sets you apart from the the other dnc candidates is you actually exactly. demonstrate the capacity to listen like when right. it comes to the dnc chair candidates you know it's it's my way or the highway that's how it's been with debbie that's how it's right. been with donna brazil and that's what's so frustrating it's that yeah you're never going to agree progressives are very opinionated i'm obviously opinionated <laughs> but if you don't listen you make things exponentially worse so, so i commend you for that because we're not going to agree on everything well and see and that's you bring up that very valuable point it, it is my way or the highway for every single other candidate and in some cases they're their own biggest fan and and that's just that's not the, what this is all about and actually that is why we we are where we are today because we haven't been listening if we've been listening to people this shit wouldn't be happening right um, totally well i don't know we might have to <laughs> anyway if we had been listening in the first place, none of this would be happening. We wouldn't be having these DNC chair debates. We wouldn't be worried about Donna Brazil because we'd already be listening. The problem is we're not, and we're not holding our members accountable. Uh, up until the Debbie, the Debbie DeVos, um, or the, the Nancy DeVos, I'm sorry, I'm getting names confused here, the, the Secretary of Education right. um, nomination, up until then, there were senators who were nominating every single Trump pick. 
And that's just not right. They need to be held accountable. They need to have their support revoked. They need to have their funding revoked. They need to have their endorsements. I mean, they need to be ostracized from the party, you know, or get in line. Like that needs to be like you are either a team player, you hold our principles and ideas uh, at heart, and you actually embody the goal of representing the people or get out. Like we don't want you. And, And I think that all stems to listening, that integrity, that accountability. So we're definitely 100% on that. Excellent. So, you know, when I hear you speak, what I like the most is that you are the one person, besides Keith Ellison, to be fair to Keith, that actually sure. has uh, demonstrated uh, introspection. Like you're able to look and see that, you know, not everything is peachy keen. Some things are really bad. Some people in our party are pretty toxic. And, and you know, we have to fix that. So I like that you're not willing to just basically lie in front of you know people's eyes uh, like other dnc chair candidates like jemu green for example and mm-hmm. you know pretend like everything's okay like we're not unified right now we need to rebuild trust we need to make sure that going forward we're going to be strong against trump and whatnot uh but one thing that i uh, i want to bring up to you which has been a huge uh issue for the dnc chair race is lobbyist contributions so <laughs> i i've stated that you know i'm going to contradict myself admittedly here because i i don't want someone who's going to get in there and be an authoritarian and say it's mm-hmm. my way or the highway but at the same time when it comes to lobbyist contributions i feel like that's so fundamentally anti-democratic that it's a no-brainer like you should never want to accept lobbyist contributions so maybe on that issue i want someone who's going to get in there and crack skulls but on every other issue maybe we can actually have a discussion discussion. about it so the thing about keith ellison that i want to bring out is that he has kind of ran on this uh this campaign of you know we're going to stop these lobbyist contributions and to me, I feel like he's wavering. I feel like he's saying, um, and not to make this about Keith Ellison exclusively, sure. but just to, for you know illustrative purposes, he's saying, you know, now we're going to have a discussion about it. When it comes to lobbyist contributions, can you unequivocally say that you're going to stop them if you're DNC chair? And uh, I have already made that pledge. I know it's not getting around the uh, the notifications so much, but I it, it's pinned to the top of my Twitter. I've sent it on the Facebook. Uh, I absolutely we're getting rid of corporate money because. Um, and and to your point about having to mention Keith, you kind of have to. Keith is the front runner, or at least he's the front runner progressive. He was the one that invoked the name. He got Bernie's endorsement. I mean, you have to. He's going to have to come up in this conversation. Um, but he's also my competition i i feel like this race is a three-way race between me because we're the only ones that are perhaps making a stand but i will toot my own horn a little bit none of those guys none of them not even keith were talking about money and and super delegates in the dnc process or introspective uh introspection until i said it in houston so i do want to toot my horn on that to that end hey, yes too. if you're doing it then you know <laughs> toot, you got you got to drive the discussion um, but yeah, the money thing, and I want to—I actually want to talk about it a little bit more because, you know, at first, just pure academic, just looking at it from paper, there has to be some sort of middle ground, right, that we could reach, except we're not talking about 30 years ago when everything was peachy keen and not everybody wanted to burn down the Democratic Party. This is today where there is no middle ground. We have to move forward in our party, which means we have to focus on just getting our fundraising from people. That means these $5,000 dinners that only the wealthiest people can uh, jump in on, even the $100 dinners or the $75 entry fees. You and I, well, you might, I I can if I'm on orders. Oh, I can't Um, either. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, 
some some of us are able to, but most of us aren't, and especially not millennials who are still in school, still living at home, so on and so forth. We can't afford to be at the table. So if we're going to have fundraisers, they need to be like a dollar or a $5 entry, that's something reasonable and respectable. And if we are going to have high dollar things, then we need to leave that to the unions. So we talk about lobbyists, we talk about corporations. Absolutely, that has to go. But unfortunately, that does lump in unions, you know, teachers unions, AFL, CIO, stuff like that. Um, Costco, you know, Bill Gates. I don't know if he actually does donate to the Democratic Party, but I'm, I'm assuming we, we consider Bill Gates a friend. Um, if he wanted to donate a big lump of money through Microsoft, through one of his organizations, we would have to hold that money back too, even if they are good people because of that image, that perception. Because if, okay, so how do we vet corporate money, right? Because now we're trying to talk about, oh, well, we can accept money from Costco so long as, you know, they, they do hands off. Well, how do we ensure that? How do we prove that? So rather than try and figure out a middle ground now, we can worry about that in 10 or 20 years after we've matured as a country and matured as a party and have actually gotten that whole debacle out of our face. And probably we don't even have to. I'd say way in the future simply because right now we need to make it work without. And will it be difficult? I'm not saying it won't. I'm not saying that the infrastructure that are currently exists is designed around small dollar donations. But if we are to succeed, we have to make it work. And we've seen that it can work with the Bernie Sanders movement. And therefore, I believe I am not shooting myself in the foot. I don't think I'm making a promise that I can't deliver on, which I think is possibly the most important thing. I absolutely believe we can uh, fundraise and, and operate the DNC from top to bottom with just small dollar donations. And I say that because there are 270 million voters in this country. The GOP is now officially 1,000% the party of the 1%. They are only in for themselves and for the wealthiest members of society. And people just need to realize that. Maybe most people do, most people who even vote for Republicans. What we have to do is tap into that 99%, that we the people. And we need to truly encompass that, that just inclusivity. We just have to be that party that any walk of life can join, whether you're conservative, whether you're moderate, whether you're Bernie crap progressive, what have you, we need to have the discussion. Now that might turn off some people who just want to be rah, 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 but let's think about this logically. We are stronger when we are together and a bigger voice simply has more power, but more people involved in the same organization means more resources. Take that 270 million people. Those are, those are the 18 year olds and older in this country who could vote. $1 a month from each of those 270 million amounts to uh, close to 3 billion, a little over $3 billion a year. That is a game plan. That's, I think, in the order of 10 times as much money than the DNC generates on a given basis, even during a, a presidential year. So just looking at the numbers and the potential from those numbers, a more realistic one would be 30 million people donating on a regular basis. Well, what's 30 million times 12? That's $1 donation each month by those same 30 million people. That's 30, 360 million right there. That is in of itself more than what we get through corporate, uh, corporate donations, through lobbyist donations, through our friends and the unions and our wealthy donors. So to answer your question and <laughs> maybe bring everybody back to speed, not only will I pledge to do it, it is feasible and it can be done. That's, that sounds fantastic. I think that that's 
what we want to hear you know it's not you know let's let's allow bill gates to give us money because bill gates is nice and we like bill gates you know i'm i'm sure he's a lovely person but it's just a matter of like you said the party needs to be more equitable if bill gates gives money to the party well he has a louder voice by definition because he can give millions of dollars i can't give a million dollars to you know the democratic party so right. he, of course the democratic party will be more inclined to pick up Bill Gates when he calls and not me. So I think that what you're saying right. is really important. And that's one of the reasons why people are looking for progressives like you, specifically these grassroots oriented progressives, because you like Bernie Sanders showed, you don't have to take millions of dollars from large corporations. You can raise money from the people if you have that trust, if they believe that you're actually fighting exactly. for them. So now so kind of getting onto the point of, you know, grassroots uh, and whatnot. So Obviously, the DNC chair uh, or the, the race is going to be concluding pretty soon. They're going to be voting. So what can we do to help you? If we like Sam Ronan, if we hear, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we want to hear more about Sam Ronan, first of all, where can we find out more about you? You know, what's your website, your Twitter? And second of all, what can we actually do that would help you? Because as you know, the Associated Press is already basically calling the race for Tom Perez. So at this point, a lot of people are already demoralized. But what do you tell those people? And basically, in summary, to kind of summarize the question here, uh, what, do we, what do we do to help you? And how can we right. find out more about you? Yeah. So uh, the first part of your question, I'll do my, you know, my pitch, my, uh, my, my, my advertisement. Go you can it. find me uh, on Twitter at Ronin for DNC. Uh, that's the same thing for Facebook. So www.facebook slash Ronin for DNC. And my website is www.roninfordnc.org, so you, you can notice a pattern there. Uh, the only thing that isn't Ronin for DNC is my YouTube because I am apparently the worst millennial ever and I can't figure out how to name it that way. But it's, it's Samuel Ronin, and uh, I have 53 uh, subscribers right now and I think uh, uh, a little over a dozen videos. Um, it has a sign that says future ahead as the main picture and the, 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 the background picture is the picture of the sun. Um, now to how can you help me, uh, or whoever's watching, how can you guys help me? It, it's really the word of mouth. I could sit here and pander and say, give me money, give me money. But at the end of the day, money isn't going to win this thing. Not, not this race, because we have to convince 447 DNC members to vote for me. That's what is actually the, the big uh, trick that's being played right now with these future forums. It, it seems all open and people have their voice, but they really don't. Nobody gets to vote. You don't get to vote. I don't get to vote. In fact, I don't even think any of the other candidates get to vote. Um, we have to convince them, these 447, that their best interests are served by listening to we the people. So to that end, I have two things going. The, the next event is in Baltimore at the Baltimore Convention Center. And I'll, I'll happily send you the link so uh, you can update it accordingly. Um, we're organizing a rally. Not quite a rally in that I don't want you guys to actually participate and, and show up and, and, and listen to me speak and have fun at the convention, but a rally in that we need hundreds, if not thousands of people to show up and just have a presence. Because if we have a strong showing, I mean, if there are that many people there, it can't be ignored. And what what the biggest confusion is right now is this isn't being covered by Fox and NBC and ABC and all these major news networks. This is a big deal. Whosoever becomes the next DNC chair becomes the leader of America or decides its fate at the very least because of the things we said before. If the party falls, the GOP is, is there it. 
and they will take whatever power is left. So it, it's it's make it or break it time. So I encourage you to um, you know follow me on Twitter and Facebook, like and share my posts. Just get the name out there. I have a hashtag uh, that's apparently picking up a lot of weight. Um, hashtag Sam Ronan. Um, there's a few derivatives of that. Ronan for DNC. Um, people's choice, running, uh, you know, just whatever. As long as my name is in it and for DNC, we're probably golden. Um, the other thing is on that website, the, the main website that I, I talked about, the .org, um, it'll take you to the splash page. It'll give you about a little bit about what my platform is, give you a chance to peruse uh, and ask me the question so we have a nice, healthy debate. Um, but also at the very bottom is the DNC chair listing. It's a doc hubs or it's a, a doc.hub. Uh, thing, but it's a PDF. You can scroll through and you can either choose to contact your state-specific DNC chair members or you can just go down the list. I do ask, if you do go down the list through email, phone, fax, I please, please be respectful. This, These are the people who are in charge. Now, we want to overthrow them, so to speak, but we also want them to play a role and we have to be cognizant of that fact. We, we can take over the party without giving the ax to everything in our path because that's not the way to do it they they have played a role and we need to take the good part of their experiences and adopt it to our own while we're rebuilding and, and unfortunately you know that involves having to reach out to them and being nice uh i if i could say otherwise you know no just let them know uh hey my name's johnny my name's sally um i've been paying attention to the dnc chair race and this makes a really big impact on my life. And from all the candidates, Keith Ellison and Tom Perez included, the only one that I truly think would make me come back to the party as a Dem, Dem exeter or as a Bernie Crad or as a progressive or even as a moderate or Republican, the only person that I feel would truly listen to me and give me a chance to have a voice is Samuel Ronan. A message like that, respectful, multiplied by hundreds or thousands of people to each of those members, and this is a sure win. Don't think that I'm this outsider underdog that has no chance of winning. That's exactly what they made you think about Bernie. That's exactly how they spun Trump. And look at where we are today. Absolutely. No, that's great. So, yeah, um, I'll be making a call as well. And, yeah, you know, we, we can <laughs> to follow up. We can be nice. And afterwards, if they don't choose who you like, then you can be. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, That's not endorsed. That's... Or, or is it endorsed by Sam? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, won't put you, I won't get you any uh, into any hot water. Uh, so, Thank Sam, you. is there anything else you want to say to my viewers before we go? Um, no, uh, just thank you for uh, having me. Thank you for letting me have this chance to speak. And, you know, uh, as, as silly as this may sound, I'm not used to having all this popularity. So it, it feels good to have, uh, be doing the right thing and being um, – credited for good work for a change and you know what this isn't about me this isn't about my chairmanship or me leading and my name having the title next to it it's about us having a voice and i want you to remember that this is our revolution so keep up the good work guys absolutely and hey you're giving a voice to millions of people right now who are frustrated with this process uh so you know keep up the good work and you know good luck brother hope you hope you can pull this off that's all I got for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for tuning in. If you made it to this point in the video, thank you so much. You are a loyal viewer. And if you're new to the channel, thank you so much for, uh, for subscribing. Uh, and please subscribe if you haven't, of course. So yeah, you know, I hope this is a great episode. It's been, you know, admittedly a pretty bad day for me. But I needed to film. This is, this is therapy for me. If I don't film, if I don't voice 
uh, my rage, then, you know, I have to. I have to do it. Let's just put it that way. So look, thank you all so much again for tuning in. I really appreciate your viewership. Uh, I will see you all next week. Have a great day.